Good morning, everybody. Um, really good to be with you this morning, this beautiful um, fall day. Glad you were able to come and be with us here in Sullivan. Uh, my name's Phil Adams. I get to serve, privilege of serving as one of the pastors here in the Raja Park Network, Darn Sub Sahara, as well as serving with Park's um, global ministry. But this morning, um, it's my privilege to uh, bring God's word to you. If you've got a Bible there, or if you picked one up outside, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter Five. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're working uh, a series through the book of 1 Corinthians, so we're in chapter 5 uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible or you would like to give that Bible, the one that you find outside those doors, um, to somebody, please, please um, do that. This morning we're preaching or teaching on a passage that... Um, you know, at Park here, we teach through books of the Bible, and one of the reasons that we do that verse by verse is so that we don't skip parts of the Bible, so that we actually glean from all parts of it, because there's parts of the scriptures that we may be inclined and to lean away from or not to, to teach, and today is one of those um, passages in First Corinthians chapter 5. It's one that um, we may not regularly or often have heard preached on, and the subject matter of today's passage is that of church discipline. Or the official term that you may have heard, uh, whether it's on TV or heard in the context of a church, is excommunication. It's a big, scary word that may not be even very helpful um, to use. But to put it very simply, today's passage, it talks about the agreed-upon removal of someone, either wholly or to a particular degree, from participating or being a part of the life of the church. Today's passage talks about the agreed-upon removal of someone either wholly or a particular degree from participating in or being a part of the life of the church. And this is a pretty uh, triggering concept. Uh, maybe you're already asking, isn't the church meant to be a place of unconditional welcome? Isn't the church meant to be a space of, of open-hand belonging for all? And particularly if you already have a perception of the church as an, ident- an entity that, that excludes rather than includes, or societal institution that shames rather than heals, then the thought of the church disciplining or excluding someone due to their behavior maybe feels to you to be a contradiction in what the church says it is or is meant to be. And yet it is in fact this very intriguing question as to what the church is meant to be and the failure of the church in Corinth, where we're reading the passage, the context of the passage today, the failure in the church in Corinth to be what the church is meant to be, that's the very issue simmering just below the surface throughout our passage this morning. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral, immoral, immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of, out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. God, we um, come before you. God, we thank you that we get to gather this morning as your people, God, and we thank you that you have given um, us your word. We thank you, God, that you speak into our lives, our circumstances, our situations, God, and I pray, God, that by your spirit you would unify us as a church. I pray, God, even now, God, you would speak through your spirit amongst us and within us, God, leading us and guiding us to all truth. God, I pray, God, that we will listen, God, with humility and openness. God, I pray that um, anything that is said, Today, that is not of you, God, would be dismissed. God, we just um, seek to follow you and to listen and learn from your word and grow together. So do that amongst us, I pray today. In your name, amen. Last week's passage ends with the Apostle Paul communicating to the church in Corinth that they have been become decentered, infected in ways of thinking that are not compatible with a Christian or Christ-like community. He's already spoken, if you've been with us for the last last number of weeks, about the divisions within the church. He has referenced arrogance and a growing disdain within the church for weakness and frailty and an unhealthy elevation of leaders based upon their, their giftings or their abilities and their eloquence. And all of this had the church in Corinth thinking incredibly well of themselves. In chapter 4, Paul says, "'In my absence you have become like kings.'" Then Paul challenges their self-admiration by reminding them that the very apostles on which the teaching of the church is built, they live like just like those whom they are thinking oh so little of. The very apostles hunger and thirst. The apostles are poorly dressed and homeless, working with their own hands. The apostles are reviled and persecuted. And so he's asking them, do you think yourselves better than they? And so Paul closes out chapter 4 with a question based on his frustration with their arrogance. He asks, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or a stick or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And he doesn't answer his own question where Paul's frustration is leading. He leaves open-ended because the list of issues he still needs to address within the church he is still working through. And then we get to chapter 5, verse 1, and it reads like this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. And then verse 2, and you're arrogant as as in and you are still arrogant even though this is happening right under your noses. Let's try and understand what's going on here. First, we're going to look at the situation that Paul is referencing, what is happening in the church in Corinth, then the response that Paul advocates for. So first, the situation. To put it simply, chapter 5, verse 1, tells us that found within the community of faith, within the church in Corinth, is a man who is in some ongoing manner sleeping with his stepmother. That's what we do know. There is a lot that we don't know. 
We don't know anything about this man's father. Is his father dead? Is his father divorced? Is his father aware? We don't know. Whether this is a romantic, committed relationship, we don't know. The dynamics of power between this man and this woman, we don't know. One thing that is clear, though, is that Paul's attention is firmly, firmly focused on the man. One reason likely being that it is only the man who is considered a member of the Christian community. At the end of our passage today, Paul in verse 12, he writes, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church that you are to judge? This passage today, it is about the legitimate, although uncomfortable, responsibility that we have to hold one another up and to speak in to each other's lives when our actions or our behaviors or our attitudes within the church are unbecoming or ill-fitting of those that bear the name of Christ. Roger Spark, this passage calls us into a place of vulnerability this morning. And that yet, at the same time, there can be no true friendship, there can be no true community, and no true sense of togetherness unless we open up our lives in vulnerability to one another. The risk of committing to the church is the risk of being truly seen and truly known, and that is scary. And yet it is by God's design that the local church is intended to be a special means of God's grace to you. It is by God's design that there is a growth in your walk with the Lord. There is a means of experiencing God's love for you and his plan for your life that is only possible when you share your life in commitment with others. Paul goes on. Even though his focus today is on those within the church, what he does make clear as a point of special emphasis, is that this man's behavior, sleeping with his stepmother, that it is universally deemed unacceptable in Corinth. Verse 1 says, he is involved in a form of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among pagans. And, in, and both, within, both within the Roman Greek culture of Corinth and within the Judeo-Christian culture of the church, nobody thought that the sleep with your stepmother was Okay. That was universally unacceptable both inside and outside of the church. Which as you can imagine, in matters of sexuality, there was mo- most definitely, that was most definitely not the norm. Unanimous agreement around matters of sexuality between the wider culture and then within the church was rarely the case. In fact, when you read the New Testament, it is common that sexuality is mentioned as an expected issue of distinction between the church and the world. The Greek word used for sexual immorality in the New Testament is pornea, from which we get the word pornography. And this word was a a catch-all way of referencing within the Christian Judeo faith all kinds of sexual immorality that was deemed sinful. And so pornea, that is a sexual conduct that is forbidden throughout the New Testament, is therefore a reference to all sexual sexual activity other than sex within a monogamous marriage with mutual consent between a man and a woman. The historic Christian ethic of sexuality hinges on and still hinges on the teaching that sex was created as something good and beautiful to be experienced within a monogamous marriage with mutual consent between a man and a woman. And this was shocking. 
The Greek-Roman culture had such a different view of sexuality that often when people became followers of Christ, their understanding of sex and sexuality was challenged. It was something that they had to wrestle with. It was something the church had to pastor through and to create spaces of conversation around. And you're going to notice over the next handful of weeks in the series that we're in, we're going to be, the theme of sexuality is going to come up week after week and we're going to create some spaces for questions and answers. And some of the questions in Corinth that would have arisen would have been these. As followers of Christ, how do we now think about keeping concubines and mistresses? If someone has a concubine whom they provide for and they then become a Christian, what relationship or responsibility do they have towards their concubine? Or how does a concubine respond if she becomes a Christ follower? Or what do we do with pedestry, sex for pleasure with young boys, which was common practice among Greek culture? What is to be done if a man has multiple wives? Or what does a wife do if she is one of multiple wives? Or what about sex between members of the same sex? Or do women, or do slaves, have a right to say no? The Christian ethic of sex being reserved for monogamous marriage with mutual consent between a man and a woman would have stirred up numerous complex questions, and it still does. But interestingly, and bear with me on a little journey here, an area of difference between then and now is the most prominent lens through which these conversations would have been understood in Corinth would not have been through the lens of sexual orientation or sexual freedom. Rather, the questions asked in Greek culture around sexuality would have been related to the act of sex as it related to power. In the Greek culture, a major dimension of the questions being asked in relation to sex, without going into too much detail, were about who was passive in the act and who was active, with the person in the active position being in a position of power or a position of higher status over the other, whether that be a man or a woman or a child. And so what was one of the most weird things about how Christians thought about sex in the New Testament was that for Christians, sex was not about domination. Sex for the Christians was not about one person dominating or using another, which was incredibly counter-cultural. Rather, sex for Christians was about something mutually beneficial where both parties, both men and women, were given equal status in worth and in dignity. In fact, our modern wildly-head belief, wildly-head belief in having a right to say no and an aversion to rape or sexual abuse. They are not ideas that came from paganism or humanistic thinking. They are beliefs that form directly from thinking rooted in a Christian understanding of sexuality. And I go through all of that to say that although there are still areas of distinction in matters of sexuality between the church and the broader culture, we're holding to the historic Christian ethic of sexuality causes a lot of questions and a fair amount of disagreement, just like it did in Corinth, yet there are still areas areas that we do all agree on. And it is my hope that in relation to areas of sexuality that we disagree on or that we have questions about that there can be mutual respect, listening and learning and dialogue as we seek to be faithful to scriptures together. But what I want to make clear today based on this passage is if we were present in the story 
that we're reading today, or if an equivalent issue arose today and was to reveal to be here in Rogers Park and brought to light here, everyone inside and outside of the church would have found it intolerable. And therefore, to help us understand how this may have felt that feeling of universal intolerance, it is, re- is reasonable to consider that it may well have been the case that the issue at stake in our passage today was one of consent. Knowing the vulnerability of widows in the ancient world, it is a possibility that this man was taking advantage of his position of power over his stepmother, providing for her basic needs, and therefore in return trapping her in this relationship, with which, if so, may offer a further explanation as to why Paul does not criticize her. As much as this passage is a call to act and mourn in response to unrepented and ongoing sin within the church of all kinds, this is equally applicable as a call to act decisively if that sin is abuse. Because abuse in the church is sin in the church. It is the mistreatment of another through the leveraging of power over them. And whatever was going on in this relationship, it was scandalous enough for Paul to be hearing about it even though he was very far away from Corinth. And rather than the church acting and engaging the issue and being decisive in their response, Paul goes on to say to the church, and you're arrogant. You think you're so wise, so superior, so on point as a church, and yet you know, everyone knows, this is happening right under your noses. Verse 2, ought you not rather than being arrogant be mourning? In verse 2, Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. In fact, four times in our passage, Paul repeats this sentiment, let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 13, at the end of the passage, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. And what this practically would have meant would have been removing him from any position of authority within the church if he had one and then also asking him to not partake in any formal church gatherings where the sacraments are being performed at his baptism or communion as well as not allowing them to partake in any church meals which would have been one of the common rhythms within the New Testament church of fellowship. And then beyond that, it is likely there was some form of ongoing communication that occurred, whether informal or formal, but likely a few elders or deacons designated to navigating the issue, which today would also entail speaking with local authorities if the behavior was, had crossed legal boundaries. Paul, Paul goes on in verse 3 to explain his thought process, how he got to this point. Verse 3 says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, And as if present, I already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul saying, although that I'm not actually with you, I know enough to make a decision as to what needs to happen. Then verse 4, he gives further instruction. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And here we might find these words slightly jarring or harsh. This is where we maybe think, depending on the sin issue at hand, could these words be a little harsh? 
We even see this further down in verse 10 because Paul draws out this very same principle of church discipline for those engaging in all forms of unrepentant, ongoing sexual immorality. He also draws out this same principle for church discipline in relation to unrepented greed and unrepented manipulation of the truth. Paul says to deliver this man to Satan which is a phrase used also in 1 Timothy. Paul is not talking in literal terms as if Satan has a specific role in this story. Rather, what Paul is saying is to deliver the individual, the man or the woman, out into the sphere of Satan's domain, as in deliver him or her outside of the church family. Then Paul says, do this for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit or her spirit may be saved. Meaning, even though it may sound harsh, Paul's intent is that outside the community of faith, the expectation is that in some way a destruction will occur. The destruction of a way of thinking, a way of acting, a way of behaving, a destruction that Paul hopes will lead to restoration and consequently re-inclusion. Paul's ultimate hope and church discipline should always be understood as a means to this end. Paul's ultimate hope is that placing an individual outside the community of faith or limiting their involvement within the church should always be viewed as a step towards seeing the individual restored. And therefore, the goal of restoration should always influence the demeanor and tone and posture with with which church discipline is enacted to ensure grace and love and listening is always threaded through the process. We also see in verse 4 that church discipline cannot be enacted alone. It isn't to be enacted based on the whim of one pastor, but must be done in unison with the elders coming in agreement together. Then we get to verse 6. I are reminded that yes, Paul is focused on the man's behavior, but also the behavior of the wider church. Because in fact, the leadership of the church in Corinth had failed to act on the issue at hand. This letter, after all, is being written to the church. Paul's next statement in verse 6 is, your boasting is not good. You know, he, he is already uh, being shocked by their arrogance and their superiority despite what's happening in the church. He's already reminded them that they should be in mourning, but now again, he won't let this go. He's saying again, your boasting is not good. Church, discipline is not just an opportunity for the individual caught in ongoing unrepented sin to go through a process of self-reevaluation. It's an opportunity for the whole church and church leadership to go through a process of self-reevaluation. For all of us to ask, what did we miss? What is wrong with our discipleship? Could we have spoken truth in love earlier? What red flags did we miss? Where were we slow to act? What is wrong with our systems and our structures? How did we leave ourselves vulnerable? How are we still vulnerable? And what is within our part to ensure that this doesn't happen again? Church discipline is not just an opportunity for the individual caught in an ongoing unrepentant sin to go through a process of reevaluation. It is an opportunity for the whole church and church leadership to mourn and to go through a process of self-reevaluation. Let's keep going. In the next section, in the latter part of verse 6, Paul goes on to ask a question that uses an illustration. 
It would have been easily understood by his New Testament readers. It's a little bit trickier to us unless you're a baker. And the question bears some connotations that the whole community bears some responsibility. But what is even more clearly emphasized through the question is the necessity of removing those engaged in ongoing unrepentant sin due to the insidious effect of sin within the church. Sin infects. It it corrupts beyond itself. The question, verse 6, is, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And Paul is referring here to a common recipe or a common method used to bake bread, which is still common today. Let me share it with you. It starts with making a small amount of dough and then leaving it to the side, likely in a jar, and then waiting a number of days for it to ferment. And then when that, that piece of dough was fermented, they would take a small amount of it from the jar and include it into a larger batch of fresh dough. And so when this small amount of fermented dough was mixed in and joined with the fresh dough, the fermented dough worked as a rising agent to make the whole loaf light and fluffy. And it is this fermented dough that Paul is referring to as leaven. But what would have happened was this jar of fermented dough, after some time, it would go off, it would spoil And if then it was included in the process of making a fresh loaf, rather than making the loaf light and fluffy, it would make the loaf bitter and spoiled and a hazard to eat. And so Paul says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Stop mixing dough that is rotten in your baking. It's going to infect the whole loaf. It's going to make you all sick. And it's pretty clear, as illustration should be, that what's being communicated here is that unresolved character issues within the church that are left unresolved are only going to spread. Sin infects, it corrupts beyond itself. But the illustration, it doesn't end there because to cleanse out the old leaven would have meant throwing out the jar of fermented dough. And then in the meantime, While they were waiting for new dough to ferment, they would still have needed to bake bread to eat. But without any leaven to ferment the dough, their bread would have been unleavened. And therefore, it would have been flat and it would have been dense rather than light and fluffy. Verse 7 says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And this is where Paul makes a direct connection between the unleavened bread and the Passover in the Old Testament, where he clearly expects his Gentile readers in Corinth to understand. Let me explain this a little bit. At the very beginning of Israel forming as a nation, they were being kept as slaves in Egypt. On the night that Pharaoh finally gave in to releasing them, God told Israel to kill an unblemished perfect lamb and then to paint their doorsteps with the blood of this lamb. And then inside their homes, they were to make a meal with unleavened bread. And so when God's judgment passed over their homes, because even as victims of Egypt, Egypt, the Egyptian sin, they too were perpetrators of their own sin. But when God's judgment came to each home, when the blood was seen on the doorposts, judgment passed over. As in it was symbolically understood that the lamb had absorbed their punishment. And inside the homes, the unleavened bread, which would have normally only been eaten during periods that the fermented dough had spoiled and couldn't be used, this unleavened bread became a symbol of how they, as a people, were found unspoiled, unpolluted, uncorrupted by sin when the judgment passed over them. And so to bring it all together in the context of Corinth... 
When Paul says, cleanse, throw out the old leaven so that you can be a new loaf, Paul is saying, remove the person that is infecting the church with corruption for the sake of their own restoration, but not so that you can become something you're not already. If we look at the middle of verse 7, Paul is saying that the presence of sin is affecting the church, is not affecting the the church's standing before God. He's saying, remove the sin so that you can more clearly be who you already are. Verse 7 says, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Meaning, church, the lamb sacrificed in Egypt was only a foreshadow of how Jesus gave himself up to be sacrificed as a true Passover lamb. The lamb in Egypt was a foreshadow of how Jesus' blood would be shed in our place and painted on the wooden doorposts of the cross, securing our freedom, our Passover, from judgment. And the meaning of the unleavened bread in Egypt was only a foreshadow of what the church would one day become, a people, a loaf, unspoiled, unpolluted, uncorrupted by sin, forgiven before God. And when we hear all of that, it's, it's, it's beautiful, but a question likely arises, aren't we all here today still sinners? And the answer is Yes. And no. Let me throw out the tension of the Christian life by using two big words. One word speaks to a present reality in the life of a Christian. The other word speaks to an ongoing process in the life of a Christian that will one day become a present reality. The first word is justification. Justification is the done once and once forever present result of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 speaks of it. There is therefore now, right now, as you sit here, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled today, right now, forever in you. That is justification. The righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. We stand before God forgiven, adopted, accepted, redeemed, spotless. Our sin and our shame in his sight have been removed as far as the east is from the west. As we one day will stand before God utterly unspoiled by sin in every way. Today in the eyes of God that what is to come is an already reality. And the kingdom to come that is already here is more true and real and lasting than anything true of us that will one day pass. The second word is sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process that occurs in the life of a Christian. God works in us through his spirit to kill sin as we work with him to grow in Christ-likeness. Sanctification is the becoming of who we already are through justification. Sanctification is alignment. It is the future kingdom of tomorrow blossoming in the life of an individual today. That is how justification and sanctification work at an individual level. Who we already are before God in Christ, unspoiled, spotless through the work of Christ on the cross, breaking into the not yet already world that we live in through a Holy Spirit aligning of our thoughts and actions and behaviors with Christ's. But this passage today 
isn't primarily about you or me. It's not about us on an individual level. This passage is about the power of us together. In verse 8, Paul says, let us celebrate the festival. And what is a, se- a festival? Well, it's a, it's a gathering. But if you look up the historical meaning of a festival, it's a gathering where a, gathering where a deeper reality is being acknowledged. In verse 8, Paul is referring to the Passover as a festival which was celebrated each year to commemorate Israel's supernatural deliverance from Egypt. But he's referring to something more than that here in verse 8. He's referring to the life of the church. That when we come together, he's saying, it's a festival. Don't bring the rot and the malice of evil, but come together in sincerity and truth to celebrate and lean into the deeper reality of who you are in Christ. And we've already seen this coming together in verse 5, where Paul speaks about the church assembling, where Paul's spirit is somehow supernaturally assembled with them and included also in their gathering, don't miss this, is the power of Christ. Regis Park, Paul takes church discipline seriously. He took the removal of individuals for the sake of their own restoration seriously because he took the church seriously. Not as an event, not as a club, not as a service, not as a post-brunch, pre-lunch entertainment, not the church as one of many we shop around, Paul recognized that the gathered church was an assembly. And an assembly is when those who already are come into formation to accomplish that which couldn't be accomplished alone. And Paul believed in some profound way that when the corporate church eats together and worships together and just is together, whether in a school or a home or a senior facility, that in that place the Spirit of God binds us in unity with the people of God across time and space and the power of Christ assembles with us to work amongst us. Church, when we lean together, God leans in. That is the power of Night Church up in North RP or in Devon Avenue. When we assemble, the inbreaking power of the kingdom of God to come assembles with us to defeat the strongholds and the lives of those that we meet on the streets. That is the power of small groups or Bible studies that when we assemble in the, the inbreaking power of God meets us to remind us through the words and the deeds of one another that despite whatever not yet situation that you're walking through, there is an already reality of God's love for you to be encountered even now. Church, when we lean together, God leans in. That is the power of our Sunday morning gatherings, that when we assemble around the word and the sacraments, the spirit of God speaks, encourages, rebukes, forms, and we become a foretaste and a foreshadow of God's reign in a way impossible if we were alone. This is the power of Frisbee in Loyola Park or running together in Warren Park. And I know that may seem trivial and feel incredibly mundane in the moment, but I am so, so, so convinced that when God's people do the most mundane things in love together, God is pleased to join us and work in us and work through us. And if we are going to see God's gospel transformation in our neighborhoods, it will be because two or three are gathered to bring about what God desires in that place. When we lean together, God leans in. 
And I think this is what Paul thought the church in Corinth had forgotten. Even though they knew, and everyone else knew, how sin was crunching, crunching at their door, they had forgotten the dynamic power awakened when God's people gather, and therefore had forgotten that the church is worth protecting. Rogers Park, this passage calls us to a place of vulnerability this morning. And there can be no true friendship, there can be no true community and sense of togetherness unless we open our lives up in vulnerability to one another. And when we do that, there is so much to be gained and there's so much beauty that can occur, but I also know, I know that there are people here who have been hurt, who have felt unnecessarily shamed or questioned or shunned. Whether you have experienced the sting of rebuke and have been left bitter towards the church or you have been left broken by the sins committed against you by church members or you have felt the neglect of church leadership standing with you. If that is you, it is our prayer for you that despite the church being a broken means of experiencing God's grace, may you find more and more that the grace of God in your life is not broken. Jesus will never leave you. Jesus will never fail you. He will never harm you. And it is he that is committed to each of us for the sake of all of us. Bringing about healing and forgiveness, repentance and love. Because though sin infects and moves beyond itself, so does grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your work in our lives. God, we thank you that you are committed to your people. God, we thank you, God, that you desire that we would grow in Christ's likeness, that we would follow your ways and your will in our lives. God, I thank you that we don't have to walk that path alone. God, I thank you that you've given us brothers and sisters to speak into our lives. God, I pray, God, that you would fill our church with grace and love and listening and understanding. God, I pray, God, that we would be a people desperate to kill sin in our lives. God, I pray that we would see sin as something that tarnishes and breaks, and that we would want to be part of something beautiful. God, may we search your word to live uh, honorably in a way, God, that follows in your footsteps. Do that amongst us, God, I pray. Build us up together in unity. In Jesus' name, amen.